Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning, currently America's number one hiring podcast hosted by a guy named Oz. Really happy and excited to introduce today's guest, Wes Sellers, CEO and founder of Caring Ways. How are you doing today, Wes? Good, Oz. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Super excited to have this conversation. We've had great conversations in the past, so really excited for for, for this and to get this opportunity with you. I appreciate you coming on. Let's jump right into it. So CEO, founder of Caring Ways, want to learn a little bit about Caring Ways and a little bit more about the story of founding it. Can you give us some details there? Yeah. So if you think of Caring Ways, think of crowdfunding solely focused on healthcare, and we ensure that as funds are raised for an individual, that they all go to pre-qualified medical expenses. And the design there, Oz, is really so it gives donors greater confidence to give. If we give donors greater confidence to give, then everybody wins, especially the patient. So that's the business model. My background, how we got to Caring Ways, I'm very fortunate, blessed to have three wonderful founding partners who each have a pretty tough cancer story. Ron Hollis, one of our founders, is a stage four lung cancer survivor. And the first bill he opened was $65,000. Christy Morrow, our president, who is a healthcare extraordinaire, spent a lot of, a lot of years in the healthcare space, but the last year of her husband's life was a million-dollar medical year, fighting cancer. Myself, I lost my father to cancer right before I went to college. About 90 days before he was diagnosed, my mom, out of the grace of God, took a cancer rider policy out on the entire family. There's a statistic, guys, that floats around that 42% of all cancer patients lose their life savings in two years. You know, I could have been one of those statistics without that policy as a backstop. And so although our health, our team, our management and founding team understands healthcare, we've been working as on the operator side for decades you know, I think our competitive advantage is not that we get it here, but we get it in the heart. So I know what it's like to walk through those valleys. And, you know, the leap of faith should be, can I beat this disease? Not, can I pay for it? And so really, that's why we're here. That's awesome. They say as an entrepreneur, you're either a mercenary or a missionary, and you are most definitely a missionary. And the other (laughs) thing they say about entrepreneurs is that Sometimes people decide they want to be an entrepreneur and then they figure out, well, what problem can I solve? And then you have the reverse, right? Somebody gets encountered by a problem and it drives them to be an entrepreneur. And I just find that to be so uplifting and so incredible. I'm really interested in the crowdfunding aspect of what you said. So I know you said it gives donors more validation around where their money is going. How does that actually work? There's really two instances that we, we do this. Let's talk about the mental health crisis in the country right now. And That can be addiction all the way to depression. When those crises arise, 
as we raise money for a patient, we send those dollars directly to one of 400 vetted facilities across the country. It allows friends and family, you think about Oz, to really invest in someone's recovery. Unfortunately, those are instances where you don't want to get that individual any liquidity at all. We don't want to put them in a situation and invite them to make other poor decisions. And so really, we provide a bulletproof way to crowdfund, and and we're the fiduciary. We send the money directly to vetted providers across the country. And so that's really how we do mental health, because that narrative, Oz, is really about just the delivery of care and the expense associated with that. When you think broader, when you think about whether it's a NICU baby, cancer, pediatrics, cardiac, oncology, whatever, what we do in those instances, it's like almost like crowdfunding and an HSA had a baby. So as we raise money, we put it on a a branded debit card that has merchant category code restrictions. So you can spend money on not only your bills, but ride share, grocery delivery, food delivery, prescriptions. It's intended to be more of let's wrap the patient and go on the journey with them. But you still can't, you know, go buy a Trans Am or a bass boat or, you know, whatever, maybe a poor decision you would make. And so we still give the patient trust, but there's controls there for the donors so that they know the money can't be spent for other categories. And it's kind of like a smarter version of a casserole, if you think about it. Oh, I love that analogy. I always love food analogies. You know, I've told you this before. I admire so much what you, your team, and the company is doing. There's a lot of conversation in America about healthcare and what's different in other countries. And you're doing something about that. And I just, I, I think it's fantastic. Anything I can do to call attention to it, I want to do it. So really, really pumped to hear that. And I appreciate you giving us that explanation. My next question for you is, as the CEO of the company, are the other two founders, are they day-to-day or, or are you so, the main day-to-day person? Yeah. So our president, Christy Morrow, is day-to-day. Ron Hollis works for a holding company that he and I founded in the healthcare space years ago. But he's, he's on our board. So they're all very much involved, whether it be day-to-day or from the board level. Tell me a little bit about your day-to-day in terms of what you are doing when you wake up to when you go home for the day. Let us know what the role of the CEO at Caring Ways is. What's most important? What is your day taken up by? Yeah, I think any good CEO has to give credit to their team. As you're growing as a, a startup and as you grow, because Oz, you've built a great company. I appreciate that. To get to where you are from an idea is so hard. And What you have to evolve to as a CEO is to get out of the weeds and to not be the doer as much. You have to pick and choose those areas that you need to be the tip of the spear and then get out of your team's way as much as you can. So what I try to spend my time on is strategic conversations that might open up a marketplace or allow us to align with the best in class mover. I try to do a good job cheerleading as much as I can. I think that's a big job of a CEO. And then typically you're raising capital, right, to grow, and especially when you're in the tech space. And so whether you close your most recent round or you're positioning for your next one, that's a lot of iteration with your board, with potential investors. And so really, it's those three things that I try to stay involved with as much as I can. And I am very fortunate that whether it's our chief technology officer, Jason Ashman, Christy Morrow, people say, you know, 
this is all you need to know. Now get out of the weeds. And I really appreciate that. What do you feel like? Do you spend your time on similar things, Oz? Or Yeah, there's a lot of thought leadership. I think there's a lot of removing obstacles for team members so that they can uh-huh. be successful. It's evangelizing your company's mission and culture to the external world. Yeah. And then of course, internally. And then I think the ebb and flow comes back to what you said, knowing when to get hands-on, right? And knowing when to be hands-off. And of course, as time goes on and your team becomes more established and your company becomes more established, you get more and more hands-off. But I think at certain times, there's also times, especially in times of crisis or times of issue, where you do have to be hands-on and where you do have to grab the wheel a little bit and, and drive the bus. So I think the key thing is knowing when the right time to do that and knowing when the right time to pull back is because it can be very detrimental if you miss on either side of that equation. So I really just try to be an avatar for our business in a lot of ways. Again, to our customer base and to the external world, whether it be investment or what have you. And then of course, I think the most important role is how do I be the avatar for our company? What is our culture? What is our vision? What is our mission, right? And how do I continuously communicate that all the way down throughout the organization, right? And then listen, a lot of meetings, you try to do some business development, a lot of networking, (laughs) a lot of marketing, But those are the things that I think are the big pillars that make great CEOs. And listen, I got to tell you, you're one of the most humble leaders I know. I want to know what keeps you up at night. What are you worried about when you go to bed at night that maybe gives you not such a great night's sleep in terms of your role? Well, I think there's a deeper narrative about fear in general that you have to embrace. You have to identify the fear that drives you versus the fear that occupies your mind rent free. So. To sleep good as a CEO over time, you have to realize that you're going to have just some sleepless nights. And there's just some nights, eyes, you probably, it's like, it's 3.30. Like, what's the point? And I'm not laying in this bed any longer tossing and turning. Going to get out, going to go work, going to go get some exercise, do a quiet time, whatever. And I'll take a nap at one, right? But um, some of the things that keep you up or not are just unnecessary what ifs that you can't give them a life. The primary fear that keeps me up consistently is that caring ways doesn't help as many people as it can. It's that simple. I would probably have a different opinion if I was a home builder or fill in the blank where this is purely commerce, which is wonderful which is wonderful. But you're talking about life and death. You're talking about the chance to give someone the peace of mind to just focus on recovery. And primarily, we're a tool to remind people they are not alone. It's bigger than money. That's really powerful in scary situations. And so that's a real burden to me. And Oz, you've been such a a breath of fresh air and have put wind in my cells to just say it's okay to say what you wrestle with and to embrace those things and say, I don't want to be a limiting factor to giving that life and getting it out there. And so I do appreciate your influence. But the, the one thing that I think is credible that keeps me up at night is we just don't help as many people as as I know we can. What a fantastic answer. Jackie, can we make this a West Sellers podcast going forward? That was awesome, man. Love it. Oh, man. Love it. I do mean that about you. Our conversations, you just come off as very empathetic and approachable and transparent. 
And, you know, that allows you to get out of the way and to stay focused on the mission. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for that. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. It's September 8th. As of tonight, the NFL season kicks off. I know you've done some work with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Tell us a little bit about that. How did that partnership start and and what exactly you do with them? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got to really brag on, first off, my friend Ryan Kane, who's a real thought leader in the behavioral health and mental health space. He is the founder of Hall of Fame Behavioral Health, as well as a really awesome nonprofit called Fund Recovery that drives down the cost of care for people in the behavioral health space and provides scholarships so that people can get to care. Ryan is who brought me to the dance, if you will, Oz. But what you find in the professional football space, especially as people retire, whether it's just wear and tear on your body, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's your prescribed opioids, it's CTE. These are all things we have to talk about, all things we have to embrace. Ryan has allowed caring ways to create a relationship with Hall of Fame Behavioral Health such that if there's a, a legend of the game, it doesn't have to be a necessarily even a member of the hall, they're family members that are in need of help and they can't afford the care they need from a behavioral health standpoint. We can come along, Oz, and crowdfund that support and really align it with philanthropic donations from Fund Recovery. So we're weaving together these neat financial elements whether it's a friends and family dollar paired with a philanthropic dollar to really care for these folks and all hats off to the hall because those players are so quick to stand up and say, it's okay to not be okay. And so what you'll find is stigma is really the leading killer of people in all of this. So to have like a Charles Haley say, hey, I'm bipolar and that's okay. Once I got help, man, my life has been great and you need to embrace that. So really it's that work. I got to pinch myself a lot of times. Like, where am I? Like, y'all do work with the NBA. Like, you get in those rooms, and you're like, what is going on here? And, oh, my gosh, there's Emmett Smith, and there's Jim Porter from the Hall of Fame. And how did we get here? I very much have my Forrest Gump moments, but we are in a big current, and we're very blessed to be associated not only with Hall of Fame, behavioral health, but with fund recovery in the Hall. And it's been awesome. Fantastic. All right. I got to ask you before we move on to the hiring questions. Do you have a Super Bowl pick for us? Man, I got to be a homer, right? I love my Titans. They're a hometown team. They're very much in our fabric. They make us really, really proud. Just really how they're a part of the community. I think we didn't really show up well in the playoffs the way we should have that last game, but I like my team, and I think that there's uh, some personnel changes we're going to have to navigate, but I, I'm going to go Titans. Titans. All right. I'm going to pick the Cardinals from the NFC. We also didn't have a great year last year in the playoffs. Redemption tour for both teams. Come on, baby. I'll meet you at the Super Bowl. It's in Arizona this year, okay? I, I love it. I love it. I love <laughs> your quarterback, too. He's easy to watch. I yeah. hope he has a great year. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com.
as a co-founder and CEO of a company, you've done a lot of hiring in your time. One of the main reasons this show exists is because we want to better understand the hiring practices and what makes people who are really good at hiring good at what they do. So let's start here. One sentence or less. Can you give me an idea of what your overall interviewing or hiring philosophy is? Character matters most. It's funny. I was reading this. I was in Canton uh, the day before yesterday at the hall, and I was reading about Bill Belichick. You want to talk about a guy that hires a lot of people and spends a lot of money on them. And his quote is, I don't want to win a Super Bowl with bad people. And so I just think our culture is so built on character. And that's the one thing we just can't sacrifice. So I would say character matters most in a hire. I love it. I mean, you see a lot of companies that value like university pedigree or big company experience, and that can tell you some things. But when the rubber hits the road, character is what actually helps you make good decisions, helps you be a good team player, helps you win when the chips are down. So I think it's a great philosophy and one that we try to live by here at our company too. So I think you're right on with that. Do you have a, a memorable interview, either you interviewing or you interviewing somebody that really stands out to you, good or bad? Yeah, I remember I was a banker just trying to break in the banking industry. I did go to business school, but my undergraduate degree is theater. You can imagine before I had that MBA and I a hybrid Mac and accounting, you know, you got to really sell yourself. But I remember I had this great boss, what ended up being my boss named Ted Blair, And he said, are you a framer or are you a finisher? And it was a really prescriptive question because if you answer one way, you're very much defining yourself. And there was a lot of freedom in that. But I just said, you know, I'm a framer. You know, I can do weeds. I can get in the minutia. But I love the way they frame the question as you couldn't equivocate. You couldn't be in the gray. You had to own one or the other. And I never forgot that. I'm like, that's a great question. And maybe it's because I I so heavily identified with being a framer more so than the finisher. I love that. That's that's great. I might integrate that into my my interview (laughs) game there. When someone has a bad interview with you, what do you constitute? Like, that's not a person that needs to be working here with this company. Is there anything that kind of a theme there that stands out? I think that the missed opportunities stand out. That person typically has the posture of, okay, I want to answer the questions the best way I can, which is admirable. What stands out are the people that ask me the questions. Are they thought-provoking? Are they wanting to know about our mission? Are they wanting to know about challenges we have in the marketplace? Like, I just like someone that has that moxie and that gumption to come in and say, yes, I want to present well. I certainly want to answer your questions, but... I have a few questions of my own and it always shows initiative. I love that. When you are asking questions and maybe you're trying to get to the root of that character that you talked about earlier, do you have any favorite questions that you ask to try to determine that? Or is that too tough to do in a half hour, hour session? Yeah. Yeah. Biggest failure. And this is a little bit of my theater degree coming out in me. It does surprise me how much that applies to being an entrepreneur. But as you know, this, so much of business is failing forward. When you go out there and you're an actor, especially if you're trying to do improv or comedy, it's a slow death. You can't lie to yourself. When you're bad, you are bad and you're bad in front of a bunch of people. But there's this empowerment when you fail forward. And so if you invite someone to talk about maybe their biggest, it can be sports, it can be business, just failure. Someone's ability to own where they fall short 
says a lot about who they are. And really for our culture, we try to have a culture of, of real transparency. And part of that is, yeah, man, I, I thought we were going to hit that number. I thought we were going to get that sale. I thought that was the right space to take the company into or the right joint venture. And you have to look at people and say, I was wrong. You know, so to say, what's your biggest failure? You know, we want to give it context. I don't need to know about your personal failures or relational failures. We don't want to go there. (laughs) But I think it, it reveals a lot about the person. Sure. You got me thinking. I'm going back through my Rolodex and how I would answer that question. So it's definitely yeah. super thought provoking. When you miss on, because we all miss sometimes, right? We don't always, we're no, no one's 100% perfect at hiring. When you miss on somebody, is there something that you can kind of always look back on and that maybe a red flag you missed or a question you didn't ask or something that you maybe overemphasized that didn't need to be? Sometimes you want to help people. You know, like I think they could be a fit here. And I know they need some help. That can get slippery. Sure. Whereas it's, man, this guy's just a perfect fit and we can't miss out on this, this lady, this guy. So for me, sometimes, and I would say more so with other companies than any hire we've had at Caring Ways, but sometimes trying to help someone that needs a job versus finding the right person. If I'm just being honest, that's probably where I've messed up a few times. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I think what can happen is I like the idea of this person if X, Y, and Z happens, but maybe you're ignoring the things in front of you because maybe you want it for them more than they want it. Or maybe you're kind of idealizing something that is kind of in your face telling you this might not be the right fit. Is that a fair way to say that? I love the way you said the second one, you know, idealizing something instead of saying this might not be the right fit. Good. I love it. So we all agree that candidate experience is important. You know, I've asked that question multiple times and everybody says it's a really important thing. Is there anything in particular that you do that creates a candidate experience for Caring Ways or when people interview with you and your team that you found is, has been really effective or maybe something you even want to be better at? I think it's something I'm still really learning a lot about, Oz. When we bring people in, we're still at a size where you can meet the team and we try to put them in settings that aren't formal. And we try to really create that atmosphere. So when someone's just being themselves, we can see how well that fits within the rest of the team. But, you know, that's something that I would look for from a thought leader like yourself from just the best practices. You know, there's companies in town where even large ones that I know one in particular where the CEO will want to go to dinner with you and your significant other. Mm. I got to tell you, I can see some some real wisdom in some of that. Mm -hmm. That's kind of niche to them. I don't know anybody else that does that. That's kind of one of their best practices that they do. I would say, teach me, what are the best things that you see out there? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing we think a lot about in this company. We think it's really important. We think it's a form of marketing, right? Because if you're interviewing a thousand people over the course of a year, that's a thousand people that are interacting with your brand and company. And deciding if they want to use your product or service or recommend your company to other people. So we think it's really, really important. A couple of things that come top of mind to me are the small things matter, showing up on time, being engaged in the conversation, being prepared, right? Things that are just a lot of times common sense are things that people miss out on. And those are cues, right? That if you're interviewing somebody, you're looking at that if they're checking their phone in the interview. So you certainly have to look at it the other way. And I think that empathy is probably the biggest thing that people miss out on. And here's why it happens. You're a hiring manager. 
you have a job open, you want to fill the job, you're probably talking to 15 to 20 people, okay? And so mm-hmm. naturally, when you're talking to 15 and 20 people about one thing, it starts to probably feel a little bit transactional. Yeah. It starts to feel like a, a manufacturing press, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're that one candidate, maybe you're a candidate that got laid off and is really looking for work. Maybe you're a candidate that really wants to work at this company. You've done a lot of research. or Maybe this, this is a role that can take you where you want to go. That's the only thing you're thinking about. It's really important yeah. to you. You're not thinking about it, the other 14 people who are interviewing. You're thinking about how this impacts your life. And I think what a lot of hiring teams, recruiters, and managers miss is that this is really this experience is really important to this person. This half hour, this hour could mean the difference between success and lack of success or making bills or not making bills or family relationships, all different types of things. Jobs are really important. Our professions are really important. And so I think if we take the attitude that every single person that is interviewing for this role deserves time, deserves understanding, deserves compassion individually, then I think we'll be in a better spot. But that's a hard thing to yeah. do. And, and not many people do it effectively. But I think that's one of the biggest things we miss is that when you're hiring, you're looking at it as I'm talking to multiple people. So this is just yeah. this is just me going through the motions a lot of the time. And I think for the individuals, it can be really, really important. If you take it through that context, that can be a really big benefit to candidate experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And you, you kind of set that standard from the culture out of the gate as well. Absolutely. Because they're looking at how the little things are and the consistency and how your people talk and what people find to be important. Ultimately, what you do is who you are, right? Your actions are what make your culture what it is. And people are determining that through that interview process. So if you want somebody to work right. at your company, you better do a really good job about being transparent about that and being honest about that so people know what they're getting when they come to your company. Right, right. Amen. Love it. All right, let's get out of the hiring stuff real quick. I want to hear about, we talked a little bit about the day in your life. I'm interested to know what you're working on right now that's really exciting you. What, what's getting you up out of bed in the morning? Yeah, well, on the mental health side, that platform's going to need to evolve. I've shared this with your CFO, Landon, who I just think the world of. If both of you represent your company, I'm convinced there's not a bad person that works there. (laughs) I appreciate it. But what we've begun to do in the mental health space is not only raise money for individuals, we've also been able to go to facilities themselves and raise money. We call it a pre-raise. So at the facility level, and so that when someone walks through the door, we have this corpus of money set aside. And in every instance, there's still discounts on the care itself. But we're also beginning to align with foundations, family offices that really want to fund, provide credible funding for populations, for neighborhoods. So as there's a buzzword in healthcare called uh, Population Health Management or POP Health. So we have begun to take that approach and say, what if we focused on mental health therapy for African-American inner city youth in Baltimore, which is something where our platform is being used to do right now in conjunction with all pro for the Ravens named Calais Campbell. And so what we can do, Oz, which is really cool with our platform, is we've begun to align with Belmont's, uh, so Belmont's a local university in Nashville, and they have done this big data aggregation around healthcare. They have a Belmont Data Collaborative that's backed by HCA, 
Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. But basically, now we can take the at the neighborhood level, we can raise a corpus of funds and then deploy those funds to the people that need it the most. So now we can go to these mental health hot zones and kind of invert the process. Let's raise the money first. Let's focus on those zip codes and neighborhoods that need this the most. And then we can go to the people with the money in hand, right? And then say, here are the quality places to go to. Let's get you the care you need. So it's a really cool inverse of the process there. And so we're beginning to evolve just in the mental health space alone is almost more like a marketplace with a committed network of care. It's certainly a big idea. Sometimes my brain hurts thinking about it. But when you can take friends and family dollars, incredible crowdfunding, a committed network of 400 vetted providers across 50 states, philanthropic dollars, and then data analytics and AI, I just think that it's such a powerful combination that can be a force for good, man. And watch out when we do it. I just think heads are going to spin and and we can get people the care they need. You're getting me juiced, man. I love your passion. I think that's awesome. I am so excited to keep Thanks, up with bro. the progress on that. Let me ask you something because there has been recently a lot more awareness and vulnerability about mental health in general. And in particular, a lot of the conversation centers around employees, right? And, and yeah. employers' responsibility in mental health. Is there anything unique about what you're doing for your organization around mental health for your employees in terms of managing it, being aware of it? Yeah. Actually, we're starting to do business with large employers around that same vein. Mm. I think that you have to destigmatize the whole thing out of the gate. You don't have to be bipolar or manic depressive, or you don't have to be an, an alcoholic, right? To qualify. Like, Sometimes mental health is just, oh my gosh, I don't realize I feel totally alone. This big project that Oz gave me, right? I'm drowning. I don't want to tell anybody that I need help or that I'm afraid I'm going to fail. You know, if we move down the paradigm, maybe a little bit further from the clinical and just to mental well-being, that's where the conversation has to start. If you can intervene earlier, when someone just feels alone or overwhelmed, and you can say, this is a safe space to talk about that, then you can intervene earlier before it you know, turns into something that is more chronic, is scarier. You start self-medicating. So I think you know, within our organization, we do a pretty good job of just checking in and saying, how are you doing? How are you doing? Where do you feel swamped? Where do you feel overwhelmed? Where do you feel undervalued? And be more preemptive with it. That's really what we try to do. I love that. As the CEO, as the leader, I mean, you have to model that. You have to be vulnerable yourself. So are, are you finding opportunities to do that with your team? I believe I can. Even if it's something small as here's a vision, here's a big idea. We're leaning into it. Hey guys, it's not going the way we think. I think it it should. Or I think we can still get to the same spot, but it's going to be twice as hard and we need to do that. Or my CTO and I, we've been friends for over a decade. He's just someone I can go to and say, "Man, I'm really wrestling with this. You know, help me out. What do you think? Give me your perspective." And just having those uh, safe spaces to have those conversations is a big deal. That's awesome. Absolutely fantastic. All right. 
Last question. We have a thing we like to do on this show. We want to go through an old LinkedIn post or comment of yours. We want to get some context. So I'm going to read it to you, okay? All right. Wes Sellers, ask boldly, give confidently is your tagline. Love that. Like many Americans, I know what it's like to face overwhelming medical expenses. So we built CaringWays, a fundraising platform designed specifically to help patients, their loved ones, and healthcare providers resolve medical bills in a way that is dignified, convenient, and secure. We are grateful to have the support of Harpeth Capital LLC Ventures and Caduceus Capital Partners, who both led our recent round of funding. Now, being an entrepreneur, one thing that is really important, like you mentioned earlier, is being able to go out and get capital, being able to bring in funding. So I'm interested, when you were able to secure this funding, and I know it meant so much for you and for your company, what were the feelings you had? What were the emotions? Obviously, you posted this, but I'm really interested to know, what was that? Was it relief? Was it this is just the beginning? Was it confidence? Like, what did that do for you? I think I'd be lying if it was any one thing. So there was gratitude that when you say Harpeth Capital, I think of Chuck Burge. When you say Caduceus Capital, I think of Dave Vreeland. And those individuals are people you want to have on your side when you're in a gunfight. You know, Chuck Burge for Harpeth Capital, he'll run through a wall for you. Hey, you want to meet with that guy? I got it, right? Dave Vreeland is very much, how do I get in the band with you? How do I make sure we got the right people playing the right instruments? And I care too much about you to not just be very blunt. It's a good type of directness that I just don't want you to waste any more time, right? I was raised a certain way. Oz, if you give me 10 grand and we raised you know a couple million bucks, that's somebody's hard-earned money. I'm just not going to probably have peace with that until you're paid back, until you've got a good return. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but that's how I'm wired. That's the type of person I'd want to give money to, you know, (laughs) they respect every dollar. And so part of it is let's go. We have got some great people behind us. Part of it is I'm not going to sleep till these good people get a great return. Then maybe I'll take some time off and, and really rest. But if I had to summarize it, it's, it was more to whom much is given, much is expected. That's probably the way I'd ultimately bottom line it. I love that. Hey, can I ask you a quick question? Of course. All right. Coffee connoisseur. Yes. Like your face just got real serious there. Yeah. This is a very important topic. So I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah. 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 Top two favorite places in a cup, cup of coffee. I want two because I don't want to box you in. And it, dude, it can be, I love Dunkin' Donuts. Like I respect those people that are just brand, you know, they're loyal. But you're a guy that you're just, de- you're a deep cat. So it would be a missed opportunity for me to say, hey man, on the website, coffee connoisseur, help me out. Yeah, I got to come correct here. So you, you put a lot of pressure on me here. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's all the caffeine I've had. I can't tell. Here's what I'll say, okay? I definitely stop at the big corporate shops every once in a while for convenience. And I am pretty equal opportunity when it comes to Dunkin' Donuts and it comes to okay. a, a Starbucks. I yep. love a iced latte at Dunkin' Donuts. I love an iced Americano at Starbucks with a right. dash of almond milk. But I'm going to tell you what, I love to go to artisanal or non-franchise coffee shops. I have family in Seattle that has some of the best beans in the world. There's not a name that comes directly to mind, but I like to find holes in the wall. And when I go on vacation, much like some people map out restaurants 
I'm mapping out where am I getting my coffee in the morning to make sure that I got fresh ground beans. It's like some people with wine. What's a coffee sommelier? Does that exist? That's what I want to be. I don't know, but you know what? That's either a great name for like an 80s cover band Mm. or a great website that does something that helps people find the hole in the wall, coffee sommelier. All right, so you're there, you're at that place, right? To respect the uniqueness, do you just go black? Do you stay with the same game like you're a cream guy? I'm I'm a cream and powdered cinnamon guy. Well, see, listen, I got to tell you what, that's like if you put ice cubes in your wine, though, because now you're not getting the the aroma and the beans. I got to have black coffee. There's a sugar component to it because I drink two to three cups a day. So I want to make sure I'm not putting that much sugar in my body if I can all control it. But I also want to get that taste. I have this uh, subscription service called Beanbox that I subscribe to. And so every month I get these four little packages of different beans from different coffee producers. And I try all these different beans and I find favorites. And if I like it, I can market and say, please send more of that. So I didn't mean to be doing a, a big uh, sponsorship here for, for Beanbox, but that's been a way that I've been able to try all these different coffees. And one of the best investments I made has been one of those really nice espresso yeah. makers. So between getting that present every month of the new coffee and then going and using my espresso machine every morning... I'm like a little caffeine addicted kid at Christmas every morning. And that, and that's why I just love my coffee. I love the taste of it. I love the beans. I love, but I do think putting cream in it, it really just yeah. becomes about the cream at that point. So I try to avoid that when possible. Well, you're somebody that's already given me great guidance professionally. Now we're on to something that is of real intrinsic value. So if I need to back up off the cream I think if I stick with my Starbucks, I'm good because that's, you know, wherever I want to be. When I'm at the unique spot, I'll start going coffee black. Well, here's what I need from you. I'm coming to visit Nashville pretty soon. When we get together, you're going to take me to a good coffee spot? I'm on it, dude. I love I'm it. I'm on it. I think there's a coffee podcast in the future, too. We'll look into that. You'll be our first guest. I think uh, Coffee Sommelier is, is your next great I think we got it. We got higher learning. We got Coffee Sommelier. <laughs> We're starting a whole channel here. Wes, I know you won some fans today, so I want to give you an opportunity to, if people want to donate to Caring Ways, if they want to work at Caring Ways, if they want to learn more about Caring Ways, where do they go? How do they find out? Yeah, so website, www.caringways.com. My email, I'm hands-on, Wes, W-E-S, at caringways.com. If you want to learn more about us, if you're interested from a job standpoint, we always need good talent. And then there's some campaigns you can contribute to on the website as well. So all that being said, Oz, I, you know, I'm just happy to hang with you. Thank you for the chance, privilege to be on this. And more than anything, man, you're a good CEO out there that folks like me can learn from. You give me too much credit, my man. But listen, your company and yourself are an inspiration to us all, man. I am so excited we got a chance to talk. And hopefully people go and check out the website and email you so they can contribute and learn more because I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Have a blessed day. See you, man. All right, man. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.